and welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. If you're new, welcome. We hope you'll feel at home here and connect with us. We're continuing a series called Show Me It's Real. Today, Christians are known more for their political stances and the beliefs they defend than the character they possess or the good that they do. This series looks at what true faith looks like and how we can show that it's real. This morning, we're talking about financial planning for the last days. Now, I don't know how much you think about the impact of our world's values toward money. I got thinking about this when reading about one man's escape from a North Korean prison. Shin Dong-hyuk is the first person known to have escaped from the notorious Camp 14. And people who are seen as irredeemable by the North Korean regime are put in the camp and forced to work up to 18 hours a day. Torture is common for even minor infractions. And food is so scarce that prisoners are emaciated and lose their teeth. Many resort to eating insects, rats, snakes, and even other prisoners. After having been born and raised in the camp, Dong Hyuk escaped at age 23. But he had a rude awakening trying to adjust to life outside of the camp. In an interview, he said this, When I lived in the labor camp, I had to suffer a lot of pain. But outside, you have to suffer when you don't have enough money. It's exhausting. It's all about money. That's what makes it tough for me here. It may look like the people here don't want for everything. They have clothes and food, but there are more people committing suicide here than in the camp. There are news reports about that every day. When asked what he missed about life in North Korea, he said, I missed the innocence and the lack of concerns I had. In the camp, I didn't have to think about the power of money like I do now. Though I don't miss everything from that camp, I miss my innocent heart. I wonder whether you felt any of the pain that Dong Hyuk expresses. I wonder whether you've lost your innocence to the world's values regarding wealth. And today's passage is intended to restore our innocence and shake us out of the hold that our world's greed can have on us. If you have your Bible, turn with me to James chapter 5, and I'll read verses 1 to 6. James 5, verses 1 to 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of God. Now, this passage is hard to read because of the form in which it's written. But when you understand what James is doing, you can see three really practical steps you can take to change the way you see wealth and find contentment in a world of more. The first of these is this, pity the worldly rich. Our world idolizes, imitates, and envies the people with all the toys. But the Bible teaches that we should feel sorry for them. Pity the worldly rich. I'll explain why. Believe it or not, verse 1 was written to comfort the congregation James is writing to. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. When the Bible speaks about the rich and the poor, it's seldom just talking about money. 
The Bible gives many examples of godly rich people who used their money to bless others. But more often than not, the rich were the ones who oppressed the people of God. And the poor were often those who were rich in faith. So when the Bible talks about the rich, it's usually referring to the worldly rich, people with selfish values who've made money their God. The majority of people to whom James wrote were poor. Many of them were slaves. So why write this scathing word of judgment to, to the rich in a letter addressed to people who were mainly poor? Well, the main reason was to keep them from envying and imitating them. Earlier in chapter 2, we saw how they were tempted to give their best seats to the rich and look down with disdain on people who were poor. Now James wants them to see just how dangerous a situation the worldly rich are really in. And so he speaks directly to them the way the Old Testament prophets did. And he invites the congregation to listen in. Hey, you with the super yacht. Yeah, you with the sweatshops and the porn sites. You're smiling now, but you should be crying and yelling for mercy. You're going to be so miserable, you wish you'd never been born. So James is going on like that because so often we live in the moment. And it seems like the people who cut corners and keep it all for themselves are having a lot more fun than we are. Their lives seem so easy. They say that Taylor Swift will probably bring in more than a billion dollars from her heiress tour. And most people her age are wondering whether they'll ever be able to own their own home. God's word says, don't envy the wealth. There's more to the calculation than here and now. We tend to look at wealth like some kind of security blanket or shield against our problems. You know what they say, there's some things money can't buy for everything else. There's MasterCard. But in verse 2, James sees selfish riches like rotting fruit or moth-eaten clothes. They're like a corroded battery. They burn whatever they touch. In Luke 12, 21, Jesus warned about being rich toward yourself and not being rich toward God. And in Matthew 6, 19, he urged people to invest in eternity, not just in this life. He said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither wrath, neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. James probably borrowed his imagery directly from Jesus here. We ought to pity people who treat money like their God because the money won't last. Put your hope in it, and you'll live in fear of losing it. Seek your satisfaction in it, and you'll never have enough. Sam Polk described this in a New York Times op-ed. Working on Wall Street in his 20s, he tasted the power and the pull of big money. When he left to work at a hedge fund at age 30, his greed only grew. He realized how big of a problem it was when one day he found himself overcome with anger that his $3.6 million bonus wasn't big enough. He wrote this, I had this belief that maybe someday I would get enough money that I would no longer be scared, that I would feel successful. And one of the things I learned on Wall Street was no matter how much money I made, the money was never going to do it. Now, you don't have to work for a hedge fund to get mad that the money's not enough. Do you feel the pull of more? Do you get angry about money? Do you fight with your spouse about money? Do you put your hope in it? 
Maybe the problem is that you're envying the people God wants you to pity. Maybe it's because you idolize people who seem to have it all now, but will see it all taken away. And they'll be left with nothing but judgment. Now, they say that money talks, but James says that it can actually deliver a verdict. In verse 3, he says, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will testify. It'll be evidence against you. Some people's bank statements and credit card statements will be put forward as evidence against them. They'll prove their greed and selfishness. They'll demonstrate their lack of generosity. They'll condemn them and deliver a guilty verdict. Don't envy people like that. Don't imitate people like that. Pity them instead. So the first step toward developing a healthier attitude toward money is to pity the worldly rich instead of envying or imitating them. The second step is to save and give, don't hoard. The more you get, the greater capacity you should have to give and help. Don't assume it's all for you. Save and give, don't hoard. In the end of verse 3, it says, You have laid up treasure in the last days. The Bible encourages people to save, so that's not the point here. Setting aside money for legitimate needs is just good planning. But storing up more than you need is hoarding. We can stockpile money God has given us to help others. And the last days isn't just talking about retirement or even some future period that's really bad before the end. The last days in the New Testament refers to this period we're in right now between Jesus' first coming and his return. Judgment could come at any time. And the point of the verse is that this isn't a time for hoarding. If you knew that you were going to be audited tomorrow, would you really manage your finances the way you're doing right now? The end of verse 5 makes a similar point. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. He's saying, if you're blowing your money on yourself, you're like a turkey eating himself sick in early October. You're just fattening yourself up for someone else's Thanksgiving meal. This isn't a time for self-indulgence. We're going to be called to account for how we've used our money. And God honors generosity, not decadence. Verse 5 is a statement of condemnation, not approval. It says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Now, you can do this regardless of how much money you have, right? You do this when you spend more money at coffee shops than on your savings. You do this when you spend more money eating out than giving to God. You do this every time you spend based on how much you can afford rather than on how much you need. That kind of self-indulgence is a good indication of someone's spiritual condition. 1 Timothy 5.6 says, She who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. She may have a pulse, but there's no life there spiritually. Now, talking about money in a period of history where many churches function like a pyramid scheme run by the pastors is awkward and uncomfortable for all of us. But there's an obligation to do it anyway, because the Bible teaches that self-indulgence is a sign of spiritual death. You can't call yourself a disciple of Jesus if you're not following him with your finances. Frankly, that's trouble, troubling given the statistics on Christian giving. Shockingly, they say that 37% of people who attend church every week and identify themselves as evangelicals don't give any money to the church. 
Only about 5% of churchgoers give at least a tenth of their income. And interestingly, of those earning $27,000 per year, 8% of them uh, give 10% or more. But of those earning $100,000, only 1% of them give a tithe. That's one of the reasons that the Church of Christ limps along. But it says something even more troubling about the people themselves, the condition of their faith. Besides, putting God first in your finances is a way of protecting yourself. As it says in 1 Timothy 6.9, 6, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. When you say hands off to God and tell him you know best what to do with your money, it says you're opening the door to desires that will mess with you. And I think we've all seen examples of this. I read this week of one man who was obsessed with money. He hoarded all he could and didn't share it with anyone. Just before he died, he made his wife promise that she would take all his money and put it in the casket with him so he could spend it on the other side. At the end of his funeral, his wife took a box and she put it inside and then they closed the casket and rolled away. A friend of hers who heard about her husband's dying wish was alarmed. You didn't put the money in the casket with him, did you? She said, I couldn't exactly go back on my promise. So I wrote a check for the full amount and put it in there. <laughs> well, I guess you really can't take it with you. So don't hoard what God has given you. Put God first in your finances. Practice generosity. Save for your needs. And believe that God is the one who gives you contentment. He's the one who provides for your needs. He'll protect you from those harmful desires, and he'll be faithful. So we've said that if we're going to change your attitude to our money, we need to first pity the worldly rich instead of envying or imitating. Then we need to save and give and not hoard. And finally, we're called to use what we have to lift others up. A right attitude toward money has to include compassion and justice for those who are denied it. We need to use what we have to lift others up. Interestingly, verse 4 begins with a second description of how money talks. In this case, James pictures the unpaid wages of the laborers crying out for justice. It says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. In first century Rome, many people were forced to work as day laborers. They would take whatever work was available that day, and when there wasn't work, they would go without. They were some of the most vulnerable people in society. Some landowners took advantage of that vulnerability. They would withhold pay or falsely claim there was some reason they didn't deserve it. And the consequences for the workers were devastating. That's why verse 6 says, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Uh, condemned is probably used in a legal sense here. In the Roman Empire, the legal system was controlled by the wealthy. Powerful landowners could falsely convict poor farmers and take over their land. He wasn't saying that they'd actually went out and had these people shot, but by taking over their lands and withholding their pay, they were killing them. It's graphic language to describe the painful consequences of their actions. James wanted his readers to recognize injustice and to care about it. And God wants us to care about it too. He wants us to care about vulnerable people who are exploited. 
He wants us to care about people who face discrimination and bias. He wants us to care about people who live in poverty and want. Because the Bible is clear that God cares. He hears the cries for justice. That's why verse 4 says, The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. He hears it when it feels like you're calling out into a void. God sees it when it feels like no one else does. God will bring justice to all who are denied it in this life. And he wants you and me to work to make this world a more just place. As we reflect on the lessons of this passage, Jesus is the one who shows us the way. He didn't envy the rich or imitate them. He knew that wasn't the answer. Instead, he downsized and chose to move in with a poor carpenter's family. And he did it to show his love. He did it to show God's blessing on the poor. He did it to lift up what the world often presses down. And he calls us to follow him. And Jesus wasn't a hoarder. He never owned a home. He lived on the hospitality of strangers. And one of his disciples helped himself to the offerings that he did receive. But Jesus gave up everything for us. He gave up the comforts of heaven. He gave up the luxuries of this world. And he calls us to follow him. Jesus heard the cries of justice. People thought that would mean a political revolution. They wanted to make him a rebel leader and a king. Instead, Jesus restored people's dignity. He sided with those who were rejected and looked down upon. And on the cross, he gave his life to set people free from the slavery of sin. He died so that we could be scared, spared the judgment we deserve. And he calls us to follow him. In Jesus, find your innocence and freedom from the corruption of this world's values. And follow him as you use your money to glorify God and show that your faith is real. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been so generous with us. You've provided for our forgiveness, provided for our salvation, provided for our life. And so help us, Father. Help us to imitate Jesus Christ and to follow him and not look to the worldly rich as our model or example. Help us, Father, to give ourselves to your plan and your purposes. We ask that you would help us see with your eyes of compassion to look on people who are in need and to see the injustices around us. And Father, help us not to see our money as all for us. Help us not to take a selfish approach to it, but help us to be generous, to be wise, and to manage what you have given us for your glory. For we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I hope this message has given you some steps toward a healthier relationship with money by pitying the, wor pitying the worldly rich, saving and giving instead of hoarding, and using what you have to lift others up. If this is a message you think others need to hear, share the link and help spread the word. And as always, for more messages of hope, go to gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.